Hi again, Journey. Great to be with every single one of you today, especially if you're a guest. We're really delighted to have you, and uh, it's just a blast to be together as the family of God in the presence of God, isn't it? Uh, this is my last preaching opportunity for the summer. If you've been around Journey very long, uh, you probably already know that I take a block of time in the summer and allocate really these two different chunks of time uh, a little differently than I do throughout the school year. Uh, July is about vacation and rest and family and uh, spiritual rejuvenation for the Hopkins family. I step out of my usual work regimen and I spend July as sort of an extended Sabbath, if you will. Uh, we have a blast as a family. It's really good for my soul to breathe and inhale and an exhale kind of thing, good for our family's health. Uh, we're even real prayerful that perhaps uh, this July, Dana and I might get to travel to pick up our four new daughters uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which would be absolutely wonderful if the Lord saw fit to allow that to happen. You could pray that way uh, if you're so inclined. And then after a month of vacation and rest and rejuvenation in July, uh, come August, I'm back to work. I hit the office running hard, uh, prepping for the school year ministry that starts uh, in September. I work in August, I just don't preach in August, and uh, here's why that is. On a week that I speak, it takes me around 35 plus hours of preparation for any message that you ever hear me give. Message prep for me is kind of an all-encompassing reality. There's a sort of intense rhythm to my speaking prep such that the other work that I'm responsible for around Journey has to be sort of set aside on back burner, squeezed in here and there in the weeks of the year when I speak which is most of them, which means that in order for Journey to receive 360 degrees of my best energies and efforts, I have to be very intentional about creating other blocks of time when I don't speak so that I can attend to the other Journey leadership responsibilities I'm tasked with, not just the preaching task. That's why I do what I do in August, a couple of other blocks of time throughout the year. I'm working, I'm just not speaking on the weekends. And sometimes uh, we hear, we get feedback, people write on cards, and so uh, where is Brian and why isn't he speaking every weekend? We hear this especially in the summertime. And so there you sort of hear the reason why. I Sabbath in July with our family, I don't really take any other blocks of vacation throughout the year. I essentially bank it. I save it for the summer, use it all up in July, and then I come back to work in August, hit the ground running, working on other work outside of the speaking component of my job description. And I tell you all that because it's really sort of, as well, the practical outworking of this deeply ingrained philosophy of ministry that I've carried with me for a very long time, and it's this. I'm really, really committed to the Journey Church family hearing from the Lord through a plurality of biblical communicators. I do not ever want to be the singular bright light pastor who our church becomes accustomed to only hearing from the Lord through. That's not biblical. I don't think that's healthy. God has profoundly gifted our pastoral teaching team around Journey, amazing communication gifts, and the summer is just one of the times in the year when we really leverage our church's deep teaching and speaking bench. And so I encourage you with all that in heart and mind, whatever you do, please do not tune out what the Lord has for you through these weekend worship experiences just because I'm not here. It's not about me. Continue, please, to prioritize being in a posture of hearing what God wants to say to you through our weekends 
all summer long. We have a fantastic lineup slated over the next 10 weeks, some guests, some of our own teaching pastors, and you won't want to miss a single weekend. It's sort of in that vein that I'm kicking off a brand new series that we call Against the Grain this weekend. And I'm going to, just sort of by way of introduction, I'm going to issue a giant spoiler alert right off the bat. I'm going to wreck the film Flight for you, okay? This film Flight, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'm going to wreck it. And just for the record, uh, anytime I ever talk about a film, it's not an endorsement, it's not a recommendation. As a matter of fact, I'd just say right off the bat, don't see the film Flight. You don't need to see it. I'm going to tell you the story right here and, uh, well, no charge for admission. Flight is a fictional story about airline captain Whip Whitaker, played by Denzel Washington, one of my favorite actors, who awakens in his Orlando hotel room after a night of partying and very little sleep. He boards Southjet Flight 227 to Atlanta as the pilot in command of the aircraft. At takeoff, Whip manages to thread the plane through some very severe turbulence and then very casually hands control of the aircraft over to his co-pilot while he mixes vodka with his orange juice and takes a nap in the pilot's seat of the aircraft. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen on any flight that you're ever on? Whitaker suddenly is jolted wide awake when the aircraft's elevator jams and throws the aircraft into a steep nosedive. Unable to correct the situation via ordinary means, Whip resorts to the extraordinary and actually rolls the large commercial airliner upside down in an an attempt to arrest the dive. We have a cut from the, there it is, right there. Passengers hanging by their seatbelts. You're really glad you're not on that plane, right? And Whip very sort of casually flies the aircraft just like that, upside down, all the while his co-pilot is freaking out, and Whip sort of speaks to him very calmly saying, look, we're flying level. We can maintain altitude just like this. Whoa. It's really quite a remarkable film sequence. I won't give away how it all ends, but it's of note that while all of the other airplanes in the sky on that particular day were flying right side up. There was this one aircraft, a singular aircraft that was flying upside down. And there they were. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you may have had an experience kind of like that somewhere in your past. I I don't mean that you were on a broken airliner flying upside down in an attempt to avert catastrophe. No, no, no. But have you ever had an experience as a follower of Jesus Christ where it was just like everyone else in the world was flying right side up, but there you were, the outlier, feeling like you were the only one flying upside down. Everyone else was right side up and you were flying upside down. Ever felt like that? Let me ask it another way. How many times has... It felt to you like everyone and everything in this world was swimming downstream, going with the flow, just like twigs on the shoulders of a mighty stream, and there you were, following Jesus, trusting Christ, pursuing him, hearing his voice, doing all the things that he was asking you to do, and you were the only one, it seemed, who was swimming upstream very, very much against the current. Ever had an experience like that? Let me ask the question one more way. Have you ever had an experience in your years of following Jesus Christ when you could tell there was sort of a preconceived way that everyone around you wanted you to go with the grain 
The answer, the question had already really been answered, but you knew that in order for you to do the right thing, in order for you to be true to the person who God made you to be, you had to go against the grain of what everyone and everything expect, ever had an experience kind of like that. Most of us in any of those three questions are nodding our heads, and it's my opinion, if you said yes to any of those questions, that you're in very, very good company. Very, very good company. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself really outlines an upside down, swimming upstream, going against the grain reality that is actually, hear this, meant to be our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. One day as he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. Not exactly the expected response. Crowds are gathering, and Jesus goes up on the mountainside and sits himself down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them, quite ignoring all of the crowds, if you know. And here's what he says. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He goes on. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Not part of the earth, the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And you take all that and you put it into a nutshell, and in essence what Jesus is saying is that these are just some of the ways that my kingdom, that the kingdom of God makes an impact, makes a difference, a tangible difference on the lives of those who respond and enter into it. Jesus goes to great lengths in these beatitudes, as they're often referred to as, to articulate the truth that the very nature, the very character of his kingdom, the very nature and character of Christ's kingdom life almost voids entirely the values that most people in the kingdom of this world hold dear. And then the icing on the cake is when Jesus says, you know, in all actuality, my blessings, the blessings of God, rests on really the most unlikely of people. Not the people who you would expect, not the people you would anticipate. Which is to say that from the vantage point of the kingdom of this world, we as followers of Jesus Christ, we're actually meant to fly upside down. We're actually meant to swim upstream. We're actually meant to go against the current. We're actually meant to go against the grain which does not in any way mean that we're supposed to be a band of Jesus-juking, socially awkward misfits. If you don't know what a Jesus-juke is, Google it, not now. When you get home, you'll learn what it means. Rather, for us, 
as followers of Jesus Christ, we are designed by God to live into this alternative reality of Jesus Christ that is very, very markedly different from the one that most of this world gives itself and gives themselves to. Jesus just starts it off, Matthew chapter five, verse three. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, really. Jesus is saying there that his blessing, his special pronouncement, his special blessing comes to those who have encountered unfortunate economic circumstances. But understand that's just part of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying as well, that his blessing comes to those, now get this, who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt before God. In light of God, in light of who he is, his magnificence, his holiness, his perfection, his beauty, I am spiritually bankrupt. That's us. That's humanity. And we hear really both of those things, people who have encountered unfortunate economic circumstance, as well as those who are spiritually bankrupt before God, we hear that in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, since I am both poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You, God, are my helper and my savior. It's not coming from anywhere else. I don't got anywhere else to go. Oh my God, do not delay. Do not leave me here in this ditch. And Jesus is saying, look, world, look, followers of mine, the blessings of God are availed to those for whom the harsh realities of life have caused them to be open to receive what God has for them. Blessed are the poor. And what does he say? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs for the kingdom of heaven is theirs that's upside down it's going against the flow it's going against the grain and by saying as much jesus is undercutting the predominant worldview that assumes that material blessings are the sign of god's approval in one's life and that they flow from the spiritual blessings of god we do this all the time we see people of great wealth and so, and we say, whoa, God's really blessing them. Maybe, maybe not. And Jesus says, look, you who follow me, you who call yourself a Christian, you who claim the very name of Jesus Christ, your norm is spiritual bankruptcy, not spiritual self-sufficiency. It's not about you, it's not about what you can do. It's all about spiritual bankruptcy before a perfect, holy, magnificent God. And he says, look, you, every single one of you who claim the name of Christ, you will be most fulfilled, you will be most satisfied when you draw on the resources of the kingdom of God to guide you rather than your own. When times get tough, some of us turn inward, don't we? And we're like, okay, I'll just figure this out. I'll just solve this problem. It's what I always do. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, it's not in you. Turn to me, look to me, put your hope in me. I'm your savior, I'm your rescuer, I'm your source of provision, even. You will be most fulfilled when you draw on the resources of the kingdom of God, rather than your own. Time and time and time. Again, second thing Jesus says that just keeps rocking our world. God blesses those who mourn, whoa. 
God blesses those who mourn. And it's natural that that would come second in line, especially after he talks about spiritual bankruptcy, poverty, and so, because those who are bankrupt, what do they do? They mourn. Bankrupt people, spiritually and financially, they mourn, and they mourn why? Because they've lost something. And they've lost something that they count as very, very valuable, whether it's financial support, whether it's loved ones, whether it's societal status. Maybe even they mourn the loss of spiritual status before God. They mourn. And get this, when we're self-satisfied, when we're full of ourselves, when we think we've got life by the tail and have it all figured out, we're pretty tempted to have a little party for ourselves and rejoice at every little thing that we've accomplished, aren't we? Aren't I something? Look at me. Watch out, world, here I come, we say. And Jesus says, uh-uh, that's not the person who God blesses. Rather, the person God blesses is the person who's actually reached the bottom of the barrel in any and every sense, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, even those who simply look around them and see the moral bankruptcy of everything around them, and they mourn. They don't celebrate them, they mourn. And what does God say about those who mourn? They will be comforted. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And understand this, that's a promise, an inviolable pledge by God to us. And just one part of God's all-encompassing comfort, Jesus came. Just one part of God's all-encompassing comfort is Jesus came, and why did he come? To save you and I from our sin. And there's a day coming when every person who has trusted Christ will receive their forever eternal comfort as God wipes every tear from our eyes. That day's coming, and oh, we can't wait for that day. We can't wait for that day. But understand this, even as Jesus says that his blessing comes to those who mourn, mourning is not meant to be the exclusive posture of Christ's followers. As a matter of fact, the scripture in other places is quite clear that joy ought to be the primary emotion in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. But we do weep with those who weep, don't we? We weep with those who weep. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. And all the while, no matter the emotion, we're instruments of God's good news, bringing the very same comfort of God with which we ourselves have been comforted. That's us. Hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Whether someone's weeping or whether someone's rejoicing, God blesses those who mourn. And then third, chapter five, verse five, God blesses those who, this one's painful, God blesses those who are humble. Whoa. Right? Humility. God blesses those who are humble. And we look around this world, and that strikes us as almost difficult to believe, doesn't it? Because we survey the landscape in 2013, and often it appears that it's the domineering, and it's the aggressive, and it's the harsh, and it's the tyrannical they're the ones who win the day and somehow manage to establish their own little kingdoms right here on planet Earth. And Jesus says, uh-uh, 
just because they've established a beachhead in the kingdom of this earth does not mean they have my blessing. It's the humble, Jesus says, that I bless. It's the person, it's the people, it's the church who doesn't assert itself over others in any effort to advance their own cause. That's who God shows favor to. It's the humble he shows favor to. And we sometimes hear the word humble and we think it somehow implies weakness, don't we? In order for me to be humble, I must also be weak. Look at the life of Christ and you look at his final hours as he marches up Calvary's hill to die the cruelest death imaginable and you see the humility all over his life and at the same time you see an unbelievable strength. Humble and could not be more strong. Humility doesn't imply weakness, not in any sense. And Jesus says, what about the humble? They will inherit the whole earth. Not a little of it, not a slice of it. They will inherit the entire, whole, the whole earth. The strength of God himself coupled with a selfless non-assertiveness produces a gentle person who patiently endures much for the sake of bringing God's kingdom to bear. Bringing God's kingdom to bear in humility. And Jesus says, look, that's who God blesses. That's the person who will inherit the whole earth. And I'd love to have time to plow over all eight of Jesus' statements in Matthew chapter 5. I want to get to what is the most important piece of this conversation, which is how and where all of this lands in our lives. And here's what's true. Jesus' statements in the first 10 verses of Matthew 5, please, please, please understand them. They're not in any way required standards that any of us must perform in order to curry God's favor. Some of us, we read stuff in the Bible, right, and we're like, okay, in order for me to get into God's good graces, I just gotta do this. I just gotta become more like that. I gotta be more humble. I gotta be more poor. I gotta mourn more, especially in Montana. We're workers, right? We put on our work boots and we just go to work. I'm just gonna do this. Grit my teeth and do this because I gotta somehow earn God's favor. Don't. You can't. Don't. What's absolutely true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that Jesus loves you, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're mournful, whether you're celebrative, whether you're humble, whether you are the most arrogant person in the whole world, Jesus loves you. Jesus absolutely loves you. It doesn't matter. And he's not in any way, not in any way saying that in order to find God's favor, more of God's favor, or earn his affection, that you have to become now like those eight statements. It doesn't work like that. There were these religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were called Pharisees, and that was their posture. The Pharisees were really this sort of band of professional religious men. They made nothing but rigorous, the most rigorous demands on everyone. Which led to what? Religious hypocrisy, right? Jesus spent most of his life in ministry condemning religious hypocrisy. No, not that, Jesus says. What we do find when we look at those eight statements at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes as they're often called, 
is we see that they are the guidelines of the kind of life that God intends to produce in people who claim his name, who follow him. They're the guidelines of the kind of life God intends to produce. God intends to produce. Doesn't intend for you to produce them. What God intends to produce in you. And so it is, with the arrival of the kingdom of God in our lives, those character qualities become concrete realities of our being changed, not because we decided to, but by Jesus Christ and his activity by his Holy Spirit in our lives. He's contrasting his values with the values of this world. And it's upside down. And it's swimming upstream. And it's going against the grain of how life normally goes in the kingdom of this world. It's different, countercultural, if you want to use a buzzword. And so you see more and more and more as we abandon our pride in how great we think we are, Jesus' kingdom life is more and more and more revealed in our everyday lives. It's not about me. It's not about how wonderful I am. It's not about what I did or what I've done or what I'm going to do. It's about what God is doing in my life now and what he's going to do tomorrow and what he's going to continue to do the next day. And what often happens with Jesus' listing of these eight against the grain traits in Matthew 5 is we see them as simply countercultural and we decide, well, I want to be countercultural. I'm supposed to be countercultural. And men, young men especially, they just give up trying to follow Jesus when they hear these. Right? We hear this listing from Jesus Christ and he's talking about the poor and the sad and the weak and the mild. And oftentimes we in the church, we hold these up as somehow the picture of the ideal Christian. And we're like, you better get like this. You better start being like this. Get about this now. And young, cocky, macho young men hear that and they go, that's not me. I can't ever be like that. I don't want to be like that. And so they bail. And when the Beatitudes cause anyone to bail on faith in Jesus Christ, it's because we've misunderstood, we've miscommunicated somehow what Jesus is saying to us as his followers. These aren't a target for us to aim for, like, I better go get more like that. That's not what these are. Rather, Jesus is detailing for us what happens in your and my life when we allow the Holy Spirit of God to roll up his sleeves, not our sleeves, his sleeves, and go to work in us. When we say, all right, God, here I am, all of me, have at me, what do you want to work on? I don't want anybody going out these doors today and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to be poor I'm going to put on sackcloth and ashes and I'm going to become a professional mourner. I'm going to seek out new ways to express my humility and I'm going to tell everybody how humble I am. That's not the posture. The posture is, I want to fall in love with Jesus Christ. I want to pursue Jesus Christ. I want to become more and more like him. And then, what do you know? You might just be astounded as those very traits surface in your life as you become more like him. If you tried starting today to just self-produce those eight characteristics, you can't do it. You can't just self-manufacture them in your lives. 
nor can you self-manufacture the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 in your lives. These are the products of your and my life being transformed by God's Holy Spirit activity in us and through us. I'm pursuing Christ. I'm falling more and more in love with him and look at what he's doing. Look at how he's affecting me. Look at how he's changing me. Look at what he's doing. Oh my gosh, I'm more humble. Oh my gosh, I realize I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm poor before God. Today, as well as every single other day that you follow Jesus Christ, God is challenging us to live an upside down is right side up kind of life. Today, God is urging every single one of us to swim upstream to go against the flow. Today, God is actually daring you and me to go against the grain. But he wants to do that in you. He wants to do that in you. And hear him today whisper in your ear, let my Holy Spirit produce that kind of activity in you. Let my Holy Spirit take you to that place. Let my transformation of the creation start in you. And well, what do you know? You might just become, over time, quite like the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, first 10 verses. God says, let me do that in you. Don't put on your work boots. Don't try to be self-sufficient. Don't try to celebrate, I can do this. Celebrate God's work in you. Take your things and set them aside if you would, and would you just close your eyes and bow your heads? Invite you to go to prayer and speak to the Lord about what it is you're thinking about. heads bowed and eyes closed that's the challenge of these coming weeks let that work that God's doing in you let it be his work decide today that you're going to set your life into a posture of subjection to God that's not a very popular term I'm going to subject myself to anybody. But it ought to be our posture before God. God, I subject myself to your leadership. God, I subject myself to your authority. God, I am living into your Holy Spirit's activity and all that you want to do in me. And Jesus, I very, very humbly invite you to take the baggage in my life and tend to it in the order that you desire. Sure, God, I might have an idea about what you want to take first and what you want to take second and what you want to take third, how you want to work. But at the end of the day, Jesus, I let you have it. You take it in the order that you see fit. And Jesus, we invite you to surprise us 
with how you work and how you bring your beatitudes to bear in our lives. Jesus, would you help us get over our ruthless self-sufficiency? And will you help us please dig into you? Will you help us cling to you? After all, Jesus, it's you we want. It's you we want. More and more and more of you, Jesus, in us. And Christ, will you bear out whatever fruit of that work that you'd like to? Jesus reflect you magnificently to the world around us. May we speak boldly your words of life, your words of truth. And may Jesus, every single one of us who claims your name, may we live a life that's worth imitating by others around us. activity is so dramatic in us. May we live lives worth imitating, please, Jesus.